0: I know, but here's the laser pointer. (laughs) (laughs) Good call. Actually, when I was searching that, there were so many of them that, yeah, it was pretty funny. Yeah. (laughs) Actually, Tabernacle is Sanctuary, so, I mean, you know, we better stop calling this Sanctuary, I guess. All right. Yeah, there's a bunch of different things. The dwelling, because we're gonna get into that a little bit actually. Dale. Okay, Hebrews chapter nine is where we're gonna be starting. And what I want, what I have is these slides set up. Um, we're gonna be going through each one of them. I really, uh, I've talked to some of you guys, and and really the um, uh, seeing something really helps in the teaching. So. I want you guys to have a visual because we've been talking a lot about the tabernacle. We've been talking about the process of going and what the the high priest has to do, what the regular priests do. And this, hopefully, will give you that picture of what's going on when we talk about it more in the future. And so we have a bunch of them I want to go through with you guys. Um, But right now, let's go ahead and read verses 1 through 5. And you can go ahead and go to the next slide there, Cindy. And then what's going to happen is as we read through this, there's some pictures up here just so you guys can see, so you don't really necessarily need to follow along with me. If you guys just want to look so you have in your mind, you picture what's being talked about in these first five verses. So in Hebrews chapter 9, it says, Then indeed, every, or even the first covenant had ordinances of divine service and the earthly, and the earthly sanctuary, that being the earthly sanctuary right there. For a tabernacle was prepared, the first part in which was the lampstand, Let's see the lampstand. Yeah, there it is. That's actually the one they're going to put back in the temple, the real deal. Uh, then there's the table, which would, in this, it's actually, I think he's talking about the altar, the uh, the incense, and I think I mixed up the order. But then the next one is the showbread. And that's an interesting way people think that there's usually a table there with a bunch of little circular ones, but actually, when you go to Israel and you go to the uh uh where they're building all the new supplies that are going in there, the new furniture, they have it set up like this. There's a lot of old pictures like that, and so it's interesting that they made it in tiers and look like bricks going up. I don't know which way it was, but this is the way that they're going to put it back in the temple so then uh okay, the showbread, which was called uh which is called the sanctuary, so that's the first part. And then behind the second veil is the part of the tabernacle which is called the holiest of all, which had the golden censer and the ark of the covenant overlaid on all sides with gold, in which were the golden pot uh, that had the manna, Aaron's rod that budded, and the tables of the covenant, tablets of the covenant. And above it were the cherubim of glory and overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail, and we don't know exactly. I mean, there's. there's so many photos of of what these things look like. Uh, There's ones that are very elaborate, have a ton of details in them. There's the ones that are kind of simple. It doesn't talk that much in the scriptures about all the detail. It basically gives you um, what it's talking about here and how even the writer of Hebrews describes it and saying uh, that this is the the gold censer, which is basically the box that it's talking about, the Ark of the Covenant, which is not the lid. The lid's different. So lid is what's called the mercy seat. So that's the difference there. And that's what you guys will, will go over this. But this part right here is where they put the blood in between the two uh, cherubim, which had the, the wings that were facing each other. And that's the details that we do know about and how they built it. So in verses 6 through 11, let's just keep reading there. It says, Now when these things had been thus prepared, the priest always went into the first part of the tabernacle performing the services. And you can go back to the other slide, Cindy, that one that shows the whole uh, tabernacle and everything. Yeah. Uh, But into the second part, the high priest went alone once a year, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the people's sins committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit indicating this, that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest while the first tabernacle was still standing. It was symbolic for the present time in which both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make him who performed the service perfect in regard to the conscience." Concerned only with the foods and the drinks and the various washings, and the fleshly ordinances imposed until the time of re- reformation and Lord, we just want to hear from your scriptures tonight, we want to study and see uh, how you set this up and uh, what you had for your people and and what this means for us now um, being being after your death, and there is no tabernacle or temple, and so Lord, we just want to see what you're talking about and and uh how you have it laid out, and what this represents. And so, Lord, just guide me, and I, I just pray this would just be of you. This wouldn't be you know, men's opinions or, or different things like that, Lord. And uh, we just want to glorify you and just thank you for what you've done for us. In the name I pray, amen. So, let me go through with this. Every time we talk about with the priest coming in, what happens is that right here you have the whole outer court, or the inner court is right here, okay? All of the Israelites could go into this area, This wasn't just a priest-only area. This is all the Israelites could come into this area. But there's only one opening right here that you could come into, which we'll talk about all the significance of this and how it relates to Jesus Christ. Some really cool things. So they would come in here, and the whole process of what they would do in their sacrifices is that they would bring their animal, or they'd bring their gifts or whatever, but we'll talk about just an animal and them slaying it for one of their sins. And we're not talking about the Day of Atonement, okay? That'll be a different process. So let's say you guys committed a sin, okay? You need to get right with God so you bring in your goat. Your goat has to be pure, right? It has to be male. And you have to follow the rules that they talk about in, in Leviticus for your, your sin offering. You bring in your sin offering, and then you give it to one of the guys here, one of these priests. And what they do is they slaughter it at one of the tables. Before they slaughter it, you go over and you put your hands on the animal. And what that's representing is that you're transferring your sin to that animal. That that sin is being transferred as far as the, the, now that animal is, in a way, accountable. Okay, for what's been done. Now their blood has to be shed. And so then the priests will go ahead and they'll slay them right here and then they'll put um, the the blood into a cup. Okay, And then what they do is they take the rest of it and you guys can read about all the details on how they have to cook it um, and and what things are supposed to be cooked. You guys know that the fat is supposed to be burned off to the Lord. That's like the best part. Um, and so on that altar right there is where the sacrifice is given up to God. Okay, So it's interesting, you come in the front door there and that's the first thing you get to see is what's going on that sacrifice that's taking place. As soon as that happens, then the person would leave, okay, and go back out. And then the priest continues onward with that blood sacrifice. And then what they do is they'll take it into and they'll take care of it um, in front of God. Now, the priests and what they would do is they had a whole process on what they would do. So that was basically a regular uh, sacrifice. But now on the Day of Atonement, which we've talked a lot about, was which where they bring in, Um, and sacrifice that one for all of Israel and all the sins that they've done in their ignorance, okay? Well, a priest, what he had to do, and this was interesting because this altar right here, they'd bring it up here and they would sacrifice the animal, bring it up, start doing the burnt offering. And around this thing, you can kind of see how it's sloped. I don't really like this picture. I think there's better ones. But God was very, very... um, uh, precise on how he wanted this done. He wanted it to be of the ground. So it wasn't going to be in this altar that was going to be stacked up. It was going to be something that was very natural. And <clears throat> he didn't want any steps going up to it. No steps going up to the, the altar. And a lot of people have interpreted that being because no steps means there's no steps to salvation. Okay, There's no steps that you need to get there. Um, one of the main reasons was, is because with steps, is that if they would lead up to a big altar... Um, the, the priest could be disgraced because somebody could walk by and look up his skirt. That type of thing. So they made the sloped ramp. And that was actually a thing that's mentioned in the scriptures is so that he can't, you know, that <clears throat> there wouldn't be any uh, of that kind of uncleanness or, or, or disgrace that would happen there. So they had a sloped ramp going up to it, or they was may have been like what it's showing here. And then you have the uh, brazen laver here. The, and uh, that, if you remember, all the women took their mirrors and brought them in the bronze mirrors and they had them shaped into uh, where they would hold the water. And it was just a neat thing that they're showing themselves and, and giving up of themselves so that it could be brought in and be shaped into something new that's going to wash those priests as they go into their service. And so the priests had to wash before they even went into the tabernacle area. If a priest didn't wash, most likely they could be killed because they weren't following how, what God had asked them to do. And so there are certain things that you had to do in, in the process. So then what they would do is they'd bring this... <clears throat> um, uh, the the sacrifice into the tabernacle, and you can go to that other one, Cindy, that has more of the tabernacle. So what he would do is he'd come in here. Now this is a priest right here in the regular garb that they would have, and that's what they always wore when they're dealing with the regular stuff, the service of of inside of the holies. This place right here is the holies. Okay, right back here is the holy of holies. And there's that massive curtain that divided the two of them. And so what would happen is that this guy would come in and he would do the priestly duties with the whole chest plate and, and the stuff that usually you hear about a priest wearing. David of Atonement, it wasn't that way. He was completely white. Because the thing is, he's going before God. He's going back into the Holy of Holies. And so it, he was very plain. It was very humbling as he went before God. So anyways, the high priest would come in here and uh, he would pass by and go into the Holy of Holies. And then on that mercy seat that we showed in, in with the Ark is that's where he would put the blood. It was going before God and it would go over the top of what was inside of the Ark of the Covenant, which is really interesting. There's a lot of cool stuff that the blood covers, you know, or, or supersedes the law because remember the law is inside of the Ark of the Covenant. And so putting that blood on top of that shows that of course the blood is more significant than what's in there or than it's over it, okay? And so that that sin for that year is dealt with. Um, some of the different things that they had in this Uh, tabernacle was the the candles okay on this side they had the showbread on this side and then they had an altar of incense um, right in the middle before you get to the curtain uh, that divides the two now this one how the whoever drew this this tabernacle up and the reason I got this is because it really broke down inside but uh, I don't think this is very accurate as far as the walls are concerned Because what they were is they were two foot wide uh, acacia boards and they were covered in gold. And so when you'd walk into this place, it was just solid gold walls is what you'd see when you go in there. Absolutely beautiful. And the only thing that was light in the whole place was the (coughs) menorah or that candle. There's seven candles that were on there and they were always supposed to be burning continually. You guys know you've heard verses of that, that that was one of the duties that they were supposed to do in keeping that. And the showbread, what would happen with that is that they every Sabbath they would switch out. So they'd go cook more showbread and it had to be cooked a certain way with certain ingredients. And then the, the priest could eat the stuff that was in there. So they always got a week old bread that they were eating. And then you had the incense uh, that was offered up before God. And this is as close as you'd ever get to the Holy of Holies. If you weren't the high priest, that's as far as you'd ever go. And uh, what you would do is so the sacrifices and how they would um, go and, and cleanse the tabernacle and cleanse the different items they would make make a sacrifice and they'd bring in blood put it on the showbread table they'd put it on the menorah and they'd also put it on the horns you can see different horns and if you can go to other photo cindy of the altar uh the incense altar (laughs) so these horns that were here and you can see there's a little bit i don't know if you can see very clear but there's blood on there and that's just what they were doing is showing and putting that blood before them There's a story too, and you guys remember, I can't remember off the top of my head about it, but they brought foreign incense in. It wasn't what God had ordered. They brought it in there and brought it before God right here, and the guys were killed. Um, I wish I wrote it down, but I didn't. Anyways, it's very, very key on everything that was done. It had to be done in a very specific order. Cindy, you can go back to the big one of the tabernacle. Um, Do the other one with the cord in it. So... As you go through this and what it talks about in the Scriptures, if we go back and look, and especially in verse 11, I didn't read 11, I stopped at 10, but read verse 11 in chapter 9 there of Hebrews. It says, But Christ came as high priest of the good things to come with a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands that is not of this creation. And it says that he was coming with a more perfect tabernacle. Another place that you read in the Scriptures is in 1 John uh, and where it says that he came to dwell among men, right? Well, that, that word actually that's used in there is actually tabernacled. So it's as if he's brought his tent to be in while he was here. So his human tent, speaking of Jesus Christ when it talks about that. And then you get to see all these different things that we're about to go to and how this whole system represents Jesus Christ. And it was pointing right at Jesus Christ, and these guys still walked away from him. And it is, it's amazing some of the stuff that you get to see there that parallel it. Um, but let's go ahead and read on to, yeah, let's go through 15. So verse 12, it says, Not with the blood of the goats and calves, but with his own blood, he entered in the most holy place once for all, having or obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of the bulls and the goats and the ashes of the heifer sprinkled, in, sprinkling the unclean sanctifies for the purity of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? And for this reason, he is the mediator of the new covenant by means of death for the redemption of the trespass transgressions under the first covenant that those who are called may receive a promise of the eternal inheritance. So when you get a read through that and you see who Jesus' work was and the, how he's doing this, and it talks about, if you guys remember back in chapter 8, and it talks about this being, you know, the, in verse 2 of chapter 8, a minister of the sanctuary in the true tabernacle which Lord erected and not man. Um, it, there's a lot of things that talks about this being the example of what was in heaven and getting to see the things that needed to be done and what it was is god just writing out a story of here's what i i need from men this is what i need and next week we're probably going to because i don't think we're going to get there tonight we may but a lot about the sacrifice and what that meant for why did we have to have a sacrifice why was this blood having to be spewing you know like it, it, what does all this mean and and what does it mean to us especially i mean are we just falling into another religious system or or, you know, there's a lot of questions that are raised because there's a lot of other religions that also had sacrifices. So what makes the difference there? Is this just another thing that men has come up with? And, and so we'll dive into that. But I want to go through this as far as looking at Jesus Christ and seeing him through the tabernacle. So let's go to the outside of the courtyard first. So we know, and I mentioned that a little bit with just the one gate in there. And you guys, I, it should right away point to Jesus, Right. The verse that you can go to and you can check it out is over in John chapter 10 or in John 14, 6. In John chapter 10 and that whole part of that, that chapter, Jesus Christ is talking about him being the door, right? Remember the thief coming in and trying to steal, but He there's only one way in. There's only one way to the Father. And that's the, the neat thing is, is that on here there's only one way to access and to go before God. There's only one place that you can go. There wasn't a bunch in the... The reason why that's interesting, you'd think, well, yeah, okay, what? there's one door. What would happen is that all of Israel would encamp around this. This was the center point of their their, their nation. And so they would have all the tribes, three tribes at each place. So um, right here is the east, okay? And you have west, and you have north and south right there, okay? What would happen is three tribes would be lined up over here, and three tribes here, and then three tribes here. And it's actually some of the drawings that people have made because Rumman was a bigger tribe and some of the other tribes are bigger. It actually kind of makes a cross when you laid it out. I don't know. It just, I mean, it makes sense. God would do something cool like that. And just like if you had an aerial photograph of this place, it looked like a massive cross with the tabernacle right in the dead center of it. Who knows how they set it up, but they did have it. And I don't know if the tribes went out longer one direction to make it, but it definitely looked like the plus sign, you know, that type of a cross if you want to look at it that way. So that's why it's interesting that they didn't have a door coming in each side of this place for each one of the tribes around there. They only had one access to get into there, and that was because it wanted to point back to Jesus Christ. He's the only access to get before the Father. Then when you come in, like what I said, the first thing is the sacrifice. That's the first thing that's seen. And, of course, we point right to Jesus Christ. And if you're going to enter in, you're going to start seeking after God, you have to go through that sacrifice first. That's what you have to be dealing with. You have to go back and you have to see what's going to happen there, how is sin going to be taken care of, and you come right face to face with Jesus Christ and the cross and how he took care of sin, how he, how he conquered death. Then you go over to the, uh, the laver, which has the water in there. In Ephesians 5, verse 25 through 27, in those scriptures, remember what it says about him washing the church in the word, right? Does anybody have that scripture real quick? Chuck, are you looking at it? Oh, I thought somebody. Are you gonna get it, Vicky? Uh, Ephesians 5:25 through 27. And just getting to see that that there's no way that you can wash yourself. And that's the interesting thing is because of what it was taken from and how they built this was because of the women. It was their mirrors. It was their mirrors to see how they look so that they could clean themselves, right? But then it gets transferred into something that now is going to be representative of Jesus Christ and him washing and him the one that's going to take care of, and he's going to be the one sanctifying. And so you go in there, and it, first the sacrifice, and then you see because of the sacrifice that we get cleaned, that God's gonna, Jesus Christ is gonna wash us and He's gonna sanctify us before we go in there and we get to be face to face, to face with the Lord. Now, here's an interesting thing, and I don't know about this because this is the first thing was I was researching. This is a new one for me. I was pretty excited about it, especially with going through First Samuel. But on the back here, there's four posts in the very back of here in the Holy of Holies. On the front, there's five of them, and I was looking up. I was wondering what was the significance. Okay, there's a lot of people out there that they try to. They do a lot of weird stuff and come up with these weird ideas of, okay, this is what five means. Five is the number of grace, and so this is showing the grace of God. And I'm like, I don't know. I have no idea, but I did find this interesting. The Ark of the Covenant, you can't take it out the front. Now, if you look at the coverings, this covering they put over it, it actually goes off the back just like it does the side, so there's really no access to get into the back. It's covered up for by four thick layers of different, we'll talk about those layers in a little bit. There they are. So the back, you can see it, it's covered over and the front was all open. But the thing that's interesting is in between the space right here is that you couldn't get the Ark of the Covenant out of there. Because they're out in the middle of the desert, they're getting raw from people. But here's the interesting thing is that Hophni and Phineas, what did they do? They wanted to win that battle against the Philistines. So they went and took the Ark of the Covenant out there as their good luck charm. And when I thought about that, I was like, oh, how did those guys get it out? They had to completely take something apart to get it out of there. By the way, this picture represents a little bit better on what the sides would look like. Anyways, I thought that was interesting and like, okay, well, who knows how they ended up happening. I don't know exactly. The measurements these guys were coming up with, was, it was pretty evident that, yeah, there wasn't space for it to get out of there. Uh, out the back there would have been, but they had the whole, uh, all the skins and everything off the back. Anyways, moving on. So we get washed before we go in there and then go ahead and go to that next slide. The one with just the tabernacle, Cindy. And so this is inside the holies, okay? Or inside the sanctuary is what this first part would be called. Um, what you're going to have on the left side, on the south side, is you're going to have the menorah, the, the lampstand. Go ahead and go to that picture of the lampstand there. This is the actual one. You can guys, if you go to Israel, this is overlooking the, the wailing wall. It's up on the side up there. It's this little place you got to go to. It's huge. I've got to have seen it. I mean, it's like this wide and I, it's tall. It's a massive piece of gold. I mean, you're looking at this thing things behind bulletproof glass and all this. Here's the interesting thing that I found really funny about it is because, of course, Jesus Christ came. There's no reason for the temple anymore. However, they have this in anticipation overlooking uh, the Dome of the Rock because they want to put it there someday back into their temple. Now, when God first told them how to build this, this is back in Exodus 27, 27-ish. It's in 25 to 30 is where he talks about how to do all the things in the tabernacle. But anyways, he told them to build it out of solid gold. Not one other piece of metal is only supposed to be solid gold. And here's the funny thing is that they couldn't build this thing out of solid gold. And it talks about it in the Old Testament. The Holy Spirit is the one that told the craftsmen how to do it. And so what they had to do in this, and the reason they couldn't do it in solid gold is because all these branches, because it's so heavy, started slowly drooping. So they had to actually stick a piece of metal up the middle of this thing and have a little arms go out and then put gold around it. So it's not even how God asked him to do it. But this is what you'd walk into. So you walk into the, the sanctuary and you'd see this lampson off the left side. And this is what's lighting the whole room up. I mean, it had to be beautiful in there. With all that gold and then, you know, the, the oil lamps going off in there. And uh, right away, I mean, I hope you guys see what this would represent of Jesus Christ. Right? When he says that he's the light of the world, right? So you go into there and you look at that, and on the left side it has it. And Jesus says that he's the light of the world in John 8, verses, uh, verse 12, and then also in twelve forty six, he says it. Now the showbread would be on the right side or on the north side of the tabernacle. And when you go in there, you'd see this table with all the showbread, whether it was little circle pieces of bread or if it was stacked up like this, we're not sure. <clears throat> but you had this bread in there, of course there's 12 of them. We know that 12 of them represents the tribe or the, the, the tribes of Israel, right? Another verse you guys should think of immediately is in John 6, 49, and 50, where Jesus says that he is the bread of life. Getting to see this, that when they walked in there and then the priests are partaking of it once a week, and every Sabbath they would come in and they would bring in a new, uh, the new 12 loaves, and having this set up in there. And it's so interesting that why would this be in there? I mean, here's the deal is that most of the time that when they would bring other offerings and, and Thanksgiving offerings or, or just peace offerings to the Lord, they bring grain and stuff like that to them. But you always had this bread that was in there. And I find that so interesting because there were so many other gods at that time that what they do is they go put the food before the, the, the idol. In this case, most people would think that the Ark of the Covenant is the idol. You know, that's in place because that's where God sat is his throne. But it's outside of that area and it's set off to the side. It's not the one that's right in front of it. And so it's just representing his, his, his relationship with his people and getting to show that, you know what, the bread of life's coming. And they always had this, 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 you know, out of the corner of their eye, as they walk in, they always have this remembrance that's happening there and getting to see this. And I found it just so interesting that that's what God did, is that he had this certain food that always needed to be in there and showing what his son was going to represent to them, that they're going to have true satisfaction out of him. It's going to be a permanent satisfaction. Okay, and then you go up to the altar of incense <clears throat> and of course, we know the incense. God always speaks of it being prayer, right? That's something in the scriptures he always relates back to that it's about prayer. And so they would have this incense, they would do it in the morning and the night, and they'd always have this, this new incense during that time burning. And it was a sweet aroma that was going up to the Lord. Um, and as they, they brought it in, of course, we know that with that symbolizing the prayer, if you guys over in Hebrews 7, we already looked at it before, but Hebrews 7:25. I'll go ahead and read it again. Hebrews 7.25, it says, Therefore he is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. And just showing that Jesus Christ right before God the Father and giving intercession. Having that intercession that he's doing there for us, as it talks about there in in Hebrews 7. And then you have this curtain. Go back to the, the tabernacle one. And I forgot I was going to put a temple one on there, but <clears throat> this curtain that's right here, this was the dividing place. You couldn't see it. I mean, this is just hacked off right here so you can see into this, but that was all covered up. So when you went in there, you never saw it back in that back area, unless it was the high priest once a year. The importance of that is, is what, was, what happened there with Jesus Christ on the cross, and it's an awesome thing. This, of course, is different than the temple. The temple was much bigger. I mean, on the outside, it was beautiful. This is a lot different on the outside, but when you go in there, the people said that this curtain in the temple was about six inches thick. Okay, a curtain that thick. And when Jesus said it was done, and then the temple—you guys remember that the veil was torn from top to bottom, top to bottom. In this alone, it was about 15 feet high in there. In the temple, I can't remember how high they were saying it was. Basically, a man couldn't do what what happened there, as it was torn. And Jesus Christ is so cool because he made that way. You know, it was torn. It was done. It was finished. And so that, that veil was torn, and now man had access to God through Jesus Christ. Such a cool thing when that happened. And I can't believe those guys, they would go in there and see that and think, we've got to repair that so that we can again have this, this you know, old, old covenant way with God. When Jesus Christ made away from him, he tore it right in half. So then you get in there and you get to the Ark of the Covenant. And this is where the sacrifice, you know, in this Holy of Holies, uh, this is where the sacrifice was to be accepted and then the sins were going to be covered. So they'd bring that blood in there and they'd put it right on the Ark of the Covenant or right there on the mercy seat. So this area right here. And that was that once a year. And just Jesus Christ going before the Father, bringing him his blood, and like what it even says there, if we read back over it. In verse 12 of chapter 9, it says, Not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood, he entered the most holy place <clears throat> once and for all, having attained eternal redemption. So cool because that was the only time he needed to do it. So it goes before the Father. Now, you guys can go and research it. There's a lot of crazy stuff out there. I only mention it because I thought it was interesting. I have no idea if it's true or not. Could be a guy completely making up a great story. Ron Wyatt was an archaeologist who was going around checking out stuff. Um, he's one of the ones that found the split stone, uh, probably the land bridge where the uh, Israelites crossed after being chased by the Egyptians in the Red Sea. There's a lot of stuff that's been proven that he found. Um, I think he found the original Mount Sinai. There was an altar below it. There was these rocks that they think they put the calf on, and it actually had Egyptian writing on it, on the sides, and even a picture of a calf. Interesting stuff. Um, Anyways, he was looking for the Ark of the Covenant, as most archaeologists, Christian archaeologists would. Uh, he believed that Jeremiah was the one that hid it just outside the gates before Babylon came in there. And so he was convinced that it was there. Anyways, he dug down, uh, went into uh, uh, Obadiah's tunnel. I can't remember exactly what the area was. But he ended up being around where he thinks these posts that the cross were in were sunken in the ground. And he believes that he found this area. He says it passed out. Weird things happen. That's why it gets really shady for me. I don't know anyways, it says that this, this area, and there's a crack that ran all the way up to where the cross was, and the Ark of the Covenant was right below that. And so Jesus' blood ran down and landed right on the mercy seat. I don't know. I mean, that would be cool. You know, God would just set it up just like that to put it there in that area. Um, but at the same time, I would argue that if it wasn't true, it's no big deal, because this was a picture, just like he says over and over again, this is a picture of what needed to be done in heaven. And so Jesus Christ taking that and having his blood before the Father and actually having it in the truth throne and bringing it before God the Father. And so I think it's just an awesome thing, either way, on uh, what ended up happening and how Jesus Christ had set it up. But you guys can go check it out. It's actually some interesting things that you can read on and uh, look at. Now, uh, oh, Dale. In verse fifteen, it says, "And for this reason, he is a mediator of a new covenant, by means of death, for the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant, that those who are called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance." Oh, there's one other slide. That's the right, the one I forgot about. Before we move on and talk about more about Jesus, go to that one that has the the different layers. This is the, one of my favorite things that I as going as, as I was studying through it and figuring out what was going on. There's these four layers that are put on the outside of this tabernacle okay the first layer is unbelievable i mean the things that he asked him to do it has cherubim that are inscribed into it uh it's got super expensive linens in this thing i mean to make this piece of cloth especially knowing these guys were out in the desert they had, i think they took the stuff that the egyptians gave them so they had extremely nice linen to be able to make this and this is what they would see when they'd walk in there they had the gold walls and then they had this beautiful uh, linen that was up there or this cloth that they could see and so that was the first layer that was on there okay the second layer was the goat skin or this goat hair now with this, uh, this goat skin the interesting thing and I went and checked it out it says a certain type of goat that had to be used these goats they didn't have a spot on them they're perfectly white okay so that was the next that next one was a white layer that was over the top of that then they had a ram the ram skin and they uh, God told them diet red I want that on there and so you have those three layers, and the last one is this badger skin on the very outside. So interesting, because any other place, they would try to make it look pretty on the outside. And you just have to imagine walking up, and here's this thing. Okay, you've got seven, about seven-foot, seven-and-a-half-foot wall on the outside, so you can't really see in there if you're up next to it. But all you can see is this nasty brown covering over this thing. that's supposed to be where you meet God. And it's so interesting. Now, how this represents Jesus Christ and how I believe it definitely, it's so cool how it does. You get to see the royalty, you know, of who Jesus Christ is. You know, his rightful place, being the son of God. And um, where he came from to even come down and dwell with us. Then you have the absolute purity of Jesus Christ without sin. Why, why, is, why it can be, right? I mean, of these animals, and they talk about it. They go back and research these things. These things are beautiful for a goat. Then you have this uh, red ramskin. And, of course, we know what that is all about. I and mean, we know that I hear it's so cool because even on menorah, uh, Mount Menorah, uh, when, when uh, God's dealing with Abraham and Isaac, and he says they'll provide him a sacrifice, there's a ram that shows up, right? So you have this ram that shows up. That's the one that's sacrificed in the place, and it talks about God providing that. And here you have a red ram skin that's being put over the tabernacle. Then one of the coolest layers ever. And I can't find this anywhere. I was super excited to find out that badger skin. You guys know that's an unclean animal. And that blew me away because why in the world would you put an unclean animal on a place that you have to do all this clean? You have to go and sanctify all these different pieces of furniture in the tabernacle. And then on the outside of it, you use an animal that's unclean to cover the whole deal. And what a cool representation of Jesus Christ, right? I mean, here he is in, in, in human flesh. And just getting to see that, that. That's what he came in. Tempted with everything that we're tempted with. And, and just how cool that is to see that God, and he's just showing, like, here's what you guys have to have. This is what it's going to be about. It's going to be about my son. And I want you guys to know, and I'm going to set up a different way of how you guys can come and meet me, how you guys can come and talk to me, how the, you're going to deal with your sin before me to restore that relationship. But everything's going to point back to this perfect sacrifice that I'm going to do. And it even goes back to when we talked about, um, where was it, the week before? In chapter 8 where, you know, uh, when we talked about when they first had this set up and uh, God asked them to do all this and they had all these rules that they were supposed to follow and what did they say? We will do it, right? We will do what has been asked of us. And then we look at how God set up this new covenant over there in chapter 8 and verse 10. Oh, yeah, we we'll was start in 10 and it says, For this is the covenant I, ha- I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their mind. And write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And none of them shall teach his neighbor, uh, and none his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me, for the least of them to the greatest of them. And then, listen, how many? it just says it again two times, I will, for I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their lawless deeds, and I will remember no more. It's so cool because as then it's all about him. You know, just pointing to that whole process of what has to happen. Now, back over in chapter 9, verse 16. It says, For where there is a testament, there must also be of necessity, or there must also of necessity be the death of the testator. For a testament is in force after men are dead, since it has no power at all while the testator lives. Therefore, Not even the first covenant was dedicated without blood. For when Moses had spoken every precept to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of the calves and the goats with water, scarlet wool, and hyssop, and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you. Then likewise he sprinkled with the blood both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry, and according to the law... Almost all things are purified with blood, and without shedding of blood, there will there is no remission. Or there is no, another word you can say is forgiveness. This is where he starts getting into an interesting thing and in showing us why, why do we have to have this death? Why was it nece- necessary for this to happen? And so as you're going through there, and what the whole part, and talking about, uh, you know, that there... <coughs> with that verse 16, for where there is a testament, there must also be a necessity of death of the testator. What it's talking about is your last will and testament, okay? Something that you're going to leave behind for your next generation or for your firstborn, however you do it, however it's been done with you. The thing is, like your grandpa can write out a whole thing on who's going to get what and set it up on what goes to where, but as long as he's alive, it's not going anywhere, unless he all of a sudden wants to give it up. But what he's written out, this covenant that he's made with his family members, is of no value until he passes on. Then it becomes firm, and, and that's what's going to happen. This covenant now takes place, and this is what's going to happen because of it. And that's what it's talking about here, is that this new covenant, there has to be death. There has to be this blood that's spilled so that what's been promised, this new covenant, can take effect. And it even says that, hey, go back to the very first one. If you guys want to argue the second one, go back to the first one. The first one even had to be done with blood as well. There had to be a death there to establish it. And so he's saying, now, this is even better because this is Jesus Christ going in there with his own blood, and he's establishing this new covenant. The thing is, the reason he had to die is because if he didn't die, then it wouldn't go into effect. Because then it would just keep writing off the old system. And so when it talks about that, you know what, in the verse 22, it says, According to the law, almost all things are purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there's no, no forgiveness. And so that had to be done. Yes, blood had to be shed. And we know even from the very beginning, remember that? With Adam and Eve, as soon as they decided to turn away from God, God had to go and have the animals sacrificed to cover them, didn't he? Now, it wasn't a whole process of him going sacrifice, but animals had to give up their lives so that they could be covered. And it talks about him going and doing that, God being the first one ended up doing it. But just setting an example of this is now what's going to have to take place. So that we can have right relationships, so that shame can be taken away from you, there has to be sacrifice. In verse 23 it says, Therefore it is necessary that all the copies of the things in the heavens should be purified with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. So if these things are set up, everything that we've seen is set up like that in heaven... Okay, if you have to go through, and like what I said, the high priest has to go through on each one of the pieces of furniture, and they have to go put blood on the different horns in the altar, horn of the, 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 all the incense altar, and they have to go through and sanctify each process, each one of the priests has to go through an ordeal. If that's happening on earth here, and that's sufficient for that, well, if it's going to be a heavenly thing, how are you going to go through that? You can't just all of a sudden take some person from this earth up there and do it. It has to be a heavenly being, right? And so you have Jesus Christ as the one that ends up doing that. That's why it's talking about there There has to be a better sacrifice than what, what we have. And so in verse 24, and that's why a lot of people say, well, why couldn't you just keep going with animal sacrifices? Well, because it was just a picture. It was, it was exactly what it says there, that these are copies of things that are in heaven. And so it isn't the end of all. That this whole establishment, this system that was here on this earth, well, that wasn't it. It wasn't just that. He was trying to show them what needs to happen in heaven. And so because of that, animals are not sufficient. That doesn't clear a conscience. That does not clean a person, absolutely. That doesn't make us so that God forgets the sins. That's where Jesus Christ has to come in. And, yeah, you know, being that heavenly, even getting to see these examples in the cloths that were here. In verse 24, it says, For Christ has not entered into the holy place, places made with hands, which are copies of the true, but into the heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us not that he should offer himself often as the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood or of another he then would have to suffer once or he would have to suffer often since the foundation of the world but now once at the end of the ages he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself such a superior sacrifice now what it says there that if if he had to keep sacrificing if it was something God all, or Jesus Christ always had to do then he should have been doing it from the very beginning Because here's the deal, is that everybody was looking forward to Jesus Christ's death. And if it's going to be a once-for-all thing, it's going to have to happen once-for-all, and it's going to clear everybody of their sin, past and future and present, right? If it was something where Jesus always had to be sacrificing, well, then he needed to start at the very first sin, because then he would have to keep sacrificing throughout that until basically God all makes us perfect. And see how that doesn't make sense? And so he was just trying to give him a copy. Guys, here's what it looks like. Here's the pattern. Remember how it says that? That he gave Moses a pattern? Here's the pattern you follow after, but here's what needs to be done. Here's what needs to be taken care of, and that's what we find in Jesus Christ. And they, there's even churches nowadays that you guys know about that are even making it so that Jesus Christ basically has to suffer every mass. There's a sacrifice with the with the bread and the and the wine being actually literal and you know trans. Uh, uh, I lost my words. Yes. <laughs> into that actual bread, and now it's all of a sudden his flesh, and then you have his, his blood, well, then all of a sudden, Jesus Christ is suffering again, right? If it's saying that that's what's happening, it means that he's not in his glorified body like what it talks about, and even what the disciples got to see him in. It would have to return Jesus Christ back to that one that's suffering on the cross, and it doesn't work. On many levels, it doesn't work. I would argue also that to take that and say that Jesus Christ, everybody that's having mass around the world, you know, how is Jesus Christ in his human state omnipresent? Another great question. You can't do that. Jesus Christ in his humanity was never omnipresent. And so, by saying that in the church, that every single Mass you have that going on, well, that's what you would have to be saying. And it doesn't work. And none of that works. And even right here, it's so clear in Scripture that he says they only suffered once. That's all that needed to be done. And that's how powerful his sacrifice was. It wasn't just another thing, hey, let's throw in this other creature, a human and make him be sacrificed, and then we can just go on from there, and it's a little better sacrifice. This was it. This, this was the sacrifice. In 27 it says, And as it is appointed for men to die once, but after this judgment. So Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. To those who eagerly wait for him, he will appear a second time, apart from sin, for salvation. This is talking about Jesus Christ's second coming. Now, the Jewish people, what they believed or even some of them are kind of returning back to is they actually believe in two different messiahs. So there was the messiah that was going to have to suffer, which is one that usually they don't talk about anymore, and, and a lot of them don't even know about. But even in some of their, their rabbis, back way back when, they were actually talking about a messiah that needed to suffer, and then they had the messiah that was going to conquer. And they had those two. Now we know that definitely during Jesus' time, the messiah that was going to conquer was the one that was being taught by the rabbis, because you look at the disciples, and they kept looking at Jesus and thinking that's who he was. And, and it even talks about how depressed they were after he died that, you know, they thought he was the one that was going to come and deliver the nation. And so even in their mindset, but you get to see that, of course, we know that Jesus Christ is the same. It's the Messiah that had to come and deal with sin like what he did, that perfect sacrifice. And now he's going to come back for salvation. He's going to come back and save us and praise God for that. Right now, there's one more little point, And if you can put that back up there, Cindy. One other cool thing that one of those scriptures that we use a lot over in Psalms one hundred three. Psalms one hundred and three. Verse twelve. Or verse eleven and twelve will say so verse eleven it says, For as the heavens are high above the earth, so great is his mercy toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our trespasses, our transgressions from us. And you guys remember what I talked about. That here comes the person in here with their sacrifice, hands it over to the priest. They put their hands on it to transfer that sin, that blood, because we know that the sin gets transferred on the animal, the animal dies. Basically, that sin is on that blood, right? Because it says that the life is in the blood. So that's where it's being dealt with. And so that blood goes on and continues in there, the sacrifice, and the person walks out the other way. And you guys remember how I said it was set up west-east. And it's so cool that when you look at that scripture and what David was talking about there is that he separates the transgressions away from the person as far as the east is from the west and how it was set up there. And so just neat little things that God had set up in the, in the scriptures and, and showing us that, you know, this is, this is what I'm going to deal with it. This thing that's gone on between us and between uh, humanity, this is what I'm going to deal with. And I'm going to bring up a nation, and they're the ones that are going to go, and they're going to show it to the world that this is what I need to do. Unfortunately, it failed horribly at it. And you guys know from the temple, because the temple was set up a lot like this, where you had the massive temple back here, and then you had the inner court, which is where the Jews were allowed to go to. Then there was an outer court where the Gentiles were. You guys remember hearing about Jesus going and overturning tables because they were using it, um, to sell. Basically what it was is that when people would travel in from other countries or other places they would up the price of the sacrifices and, and basically they were scamming people and then they would take their sacrifices and they and offer them to the Lord and so these poor pilgrims that were coming in and dealing with this and the place they were dealing with it was outside of here where there was supposed to be a testimony to the world. I mean that court of the Gentiles was a place where the world was supposed to come together and the, the Jews they are supposed to be this example of who Jehovah God was. And they weren't doing that, they were using it as a den of thieves. That's why Jesus Christ was so upset about what was going on there. And so when he overturned the tables outside that temple, and just their misrepresentation of what um they're representing Jesus or God as to all the nations. And so I think the biggest things that we can take away from this, and next week's gonna be another exciting one because we get to talk about that sacrifice and, and what it meant and go on talking about the the blood sacrifice. And I really wish and there was a guy back in Bible college, and he, was a, uh, he had his master's in biology. And the guy just knew blood. You know, He taught all of Leviticus, which would seem like a very boring book. Unbelievable in what this guy was talking about and what he was pulling out of how significant blood is. And so I'll try to find some of the, my old notes from that, and uh, hopefully I'll be able to find them uh, and bring them. But I think tonight one of the biggest things that we can take from this is that this is what God did so that he could set back up the relationship with people with humans, with, with his creation. Of course, setting it up as Israel first because it was going to go to them first because that's who God chose. But now us being Gentiles and getting to be a part of this. But it's so cool because none of us have to deal with this right here. None of us do. We don't have to go in this process. We don't have to take anything in there to get killed. You guys don't have to kill your dogs or your cat even though you might want to. <laughs> We don't have to do any of that stuff anymore. Now what we get to do is we just go before Jesus Christ. And what it's talking about in Hebrews is that he's our high priest, that he's the one that's gone on there. He's dealt with it. He's given himself as that sacrifice. And now that veil is torn right down the middle from top to bottom. And now we get to go in there because of Jesus Christ. That's why it ticks me off so bad. And it's such a hard thing to deal with when there's people that come up and talk about a human being their mediator between them and God. That they go to confessions with this man that isn't anybody that's died for their sins or anything. It has gone, gone through that. And I think that that scripture just rings out every single time in verse 15 of chapter 9. And it says, and for this reason, he is the mediator of the new covenant by means of death. I just think those guys did not die for me to come and talk to God. Jesus Christ is the one that died so that I could go and talk with God. And it's so cool. And I really hope you guys are grasping like the process and what you had to go through. And he's cleared all that out of the way. And he's dealt with it in the real tabernacle. He's dealt with her before God on the throne, and now because he's sitting down, remember we talked about that last week, Jesus Christ is now sitting down because it's completed. Not once did the priest or anybody else ever sit down in this area because their work was never done, and now through Jesus Christ, he gets to sit down, and it's done. So praise God. Thank you, Lord, so much that we get to come before you and that you are our high priest, that um, everything that you went through and um, how you can just relate with the temptations that we go through. And... uh, You know, the things that you you, you talk about and going before and and bringing those prayers or bringing that intercession for us, Lord. It's so awesome to even think that that would be set up for us. And, you know, thinking of all the sins that we do and the things that we do daily or the the rejection that we give you throughout the day or maybe not even rejection, we just don't put you first like you deserve. And, Lord, you just forgive us. And um, you're ready to bring our prayers before him and and uh just deal with our sin and we just thank you so much that we don't have to go through a process um you know that it's not about us it's not something that we need to step up and say we will do this to make ourselves better but you say that you've already done it and that you're the one that's going to work in us and lord i just ask that you continue just to teach us through your scriptures i'm excited about next week and talking about your sanctification over us and just that perfect sacrifice you gave to us lord and i just don't think we can thank you enough and uh just give us the boldness we need to have in sharing that in that excitement with our family members, Lord, and our friends. And uh, just thank you so much for your blessings you give us, Lord. You're such a good God to us. We just praise you and lift your name on high. Amen.